For those of you that came in early and saw the sermon illustration that I hadn't cleaned up yet, just pretend you don't know what's under the secretive black covering. It's very secret. Um, we're going to start with everybody's favorite, at least my favorite thing, vocabulary. Eh? Who came to church ready for vocabulary? Um, I remember I was, I was at summer camp, and we were doing one of those spiritual gift inventories. Anybody here done a spiritual gift? Yeah, come on. That's more than the first service. Good job, second service. Um, and we were reading the list, and you know, throughout Scripture, there's a few places that list out what are called spiritual gifts. And I remember seeing one of the words on the list that we were doing at summer camp and going, I don't, I guess I don't remember reading that in scripture. It's, it's in there, but I just didn't remember it. And for whatever reason, it, it stuck out to me. The word was exhortation. Everybody say exhortation. And I just, I don't know, it's, it's a, I like the word. It, it makes me happy to say it, and I'm going to say it a bunch today. Um, it turns out that the author who wrote the sermon that we call the letter to the Hebrews, this author believed that this whole sermon was a word of exhortation. They wrote near the very, very end, they wrote this, um, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Okay, actually, hold on a second. I've written a few letters in my life, not many, but a few. Go read the letter to the Hebrews, and you tell me. Does this sound like a brief letter to you? It's longer than any letter I've ever written, for sure. But they apparently thought it was a brief little note that they jotted down and sent along. <sighs> Exhortation. Um, here's how I like to think of it. Exhortation, see, I think it, it combines a few ideas. There's ideas like encouragement or instruction or advice that all get kind of mixed together. I think of exhortation as encouragement by way of advice or instruction. Because, you know, you can encourage somebody and say, go, good job, keep it up. And it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's nice, but it's a little thin. Exhortation is trying to get you to go somewhere. It has an intent to it. One definition I read of the word is language intended to incite action. You can find great examples of exhortation all over the place. A um, couple famous ones from scripture, a guy named James, the brother of Jesus, he wrote, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. He's trying to get you to do something. Or like we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, one of the wisest men to ever live, King Solomon, and he wrote some really great words of wisdom that were exhortation. He said, you want to know where to start to get wisdom? Here's the starting point. Get wisdom. Whatever it costs, get understanding. Plenty of wise thinkers, authors, speakers have written exhortations throughout time. Uh, I found a quote by Albert Einstein I'm always skeptical about whether or not Albert Einstein actually said it. Brainyquotes.com says that he said it. So, I mean, got to be true. Got to be true. 
But this is what BrainyQuotes.com says. Do not solve your problems with the same thinking you used to create them. Ooh, if only I had followed this advice my whole life. <sighs> or my favorite. This one's just for fun. Uh, my, my oldest son, he's getting into Lord of the Rings. So he finished reading the first book. So we got to watch the first movie together. And there's this scene, right, where Gandalf, the fearless leader of the troop. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't watched it. Although if you haven't watched it or read the book yet, I can't help you. Um, <laughs> And they're in the mines of Moria in this epic battle. And in the middle of an epic battle, this demon being, the ball rock, comes up. And Gandalf takes his staff and he slams it down and there's light. And he says, you shall not pass. You remember the scene. And we think he defeats the ball rock. But at the last moment, this flaming whip comes up and grabs him by the ankle and pulls him off the cliff. And he's hanging there, right? And there's like orcs shooting arrows and he says the greatest words of exhortation ever to the rest of the fellowship. He says, Fly, you fools. <laughs> and they listen, right? They run away because they're smart, because they hear the words and they do what he said. What about you? In your life, when have you been given a memorable word of exhortation? When was there somebody who at just the right time, just the right relationship with you to be able to speak into it. They, they chose just the right words and they spoke into your life and you said, whoo, that might be hard. Maybe I didn't want to hear that. Maybe I knew that and I was ignoring it. But man, when you said it, I needed that word. A word of exhortation can be a powerful um, starting point on our journeys of transformation. And I share that all because um, we're studying through the book of Hebrews. In a sermon series we're calling Look Up. That's the word of exhortation that I think summarizes the challenge from the author to anybody who would read this letter. And what we typically do when we study through a book around here is we start at the beginning and we go more or less chapter by chapter through the book. But that's not what we're going to do with the book of Hebrews this fall. Rather, Hebrews has a number of powerful and memorable words of exhortation that are just sort of sprinkled throughout the whole sermon. And what we're going to do is we're going to simply spend the fall looking at each and every one of those words of exhortation. You can know the word. That one. It's up on the screen. Um, and here's my hope. Here's my hope. This letter was actually, um, by the end of the first century, there's other ancient authors who were quoting parts of this letter in their writings to other Christian churches. And so we know that this letter was something that pretty quickly became meaningful, even authoritative, evidence of its impact on the lives of many early Jesus followers. So here's our hope. As we read some words that made a big difference in the lives of some Jesus followers living with all the complexities of life 2,000 years ago, I hope and I pray that those same words might make a difference, might be a needed word of exhortation in our lives as well today. Does that sound like a good plan? I think that sounds like a good plan. So uh, today, uh, if you want to open your, your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, 
starting in verse 11. We're going chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. Um, warning, we're not necessarily going chronological in this sermon series. We're going to jump around a little bit, but I believe in you. you can, we can do this. We can do this. So here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Ooh, ouch. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, and the lying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. I was trying to come up with, you know, I was trying to come up with things in a way that maybe is memorable, and I said, what's the, what's, what's the main exhortation of this passage? And the main exhortation is, in fact, uh, Move beyond elementary teachings. But that doesn't have quite the, like, memorable punch that I like. So I thought, well, what about, what about just beyond the basics? It's a little better. Nah, no, nah, no, nah, we can do better than that. So I thought, ah, I've got it. Here's the, here's the sermon I want to preach to you today. Grow up! <laughs> the pastor is calling his congregation to stop being a baby and grow up. I know that none of you need to hear this, but it's helpful for me. So if you just want to listen in, you're welcome. Pray with me quick. God, like we always say, it's your word that we want to listen to. Help us be people who hear your word and through that, grow up into greater maturity. Amen. So if the, if the, if the challenge is to grow up, if the challenge is to put aside immature and pursue maturity... Here's the overarching question that we're going to ask, and I'm going to ask you to think about as it applies to your own life today. What is it? What's maturity? How do I define it? How do I know it? How do I understand it? How do I, how do I understand immaturity in my life so that I can pursue instead maturity? We're going to answer that by looking a little more at this specific passage we just read um, and what the, what the pastor says here. And then we're going to look a little more broadly at how they're kind of answering this question across the whole letter to the Hebrews. And then actually, we're going to end with a final prayer exercise um, during the last song where I share um, the answer to this question that a modern Christian author has written on. What are the marks of Christian maturity? So, text, context, somebody who wrote a book a couple years ago, and I think it's really great. Um, Those are the three things we're doing. So, what is maturity? Here we go. First sentence in this passage. Author says, we have much to say about this, but, all right, key, little, little, you're reading your Bible, and you come along a sentence like this, and it says, we have much to say about this, 
And what you need to ask yourself is, what is this? What this is the author referring to? That's always a good way to help understand the meaning. Now, it turns out that this little passage I just, I just picked out and put on the screen shows up right in the middle of a much longer teaching where the pastor is arguing that of all the high priests ancient Israel has ever had, Jesus is greater than all the high priests. Jesus is the goat, right? Come on, moderate, right? Greatest of all time, is he with me? I thought that deserved more of a laugh. I thought, moving on. So he's talking about how Jesus is greater than all the high priests, and he gets distracted in the middle of his sermon, and he follows a tangent. I know you've never met a pastor who gets distracted and follows a tangent in the middle of the sermon, but this pastor writing Hebrews has to follow a tangent. And the this is the whole thing they're doing talking about the high priest. And the reason they follow the tangent is because they say, I'm talking about something important, but uh, it's hard to make it clear to you Because you no longer try to understand. Which to me is a little bit of a slap in the face. He's trying to, well, he's trying to get their attention focused on what he's saying. And then he uses three um, pairs to make the sting of that slap, I think, stick a little more. The pastor says, you should be teachers, but you're still students. You should be eating solid food, but you're still drinking milk. You're 10 years old. You should have been weaned by now. It's getting a little awkward. You should be mature, but you're still living in immaturity. And that makes me think, why why is he being so harsh with these people? And in order to answer that, we have to to remind ourselves a little bit of the context. Like I said before, um, we don't know exactly who wrote the the letter. Uh, A lot of New Testament letters, somebody signed it, or they, they... put their name into the title of the letter. Um, This one, we don't have a signature. All of the good guesses we have on who wrote it are people that were like, okay, well, if they wrote it, great. If they wrote it, awesome. I'm listening up. If they wrote it, they're all good options. We just don't know for sure. And we also don't know for sure exactly who the congregation is. But the letter gives us enough clues that we can can draw some some pretty good um, summaries. We know that it's written to a group of Jewish Christians living in or maybe around Rome, um, the capital of the ancient Roman Empire in what we would call the country of Italy. We know that these Jewish Christians are probably lifelong Jesus followers. It may be, depending on when the letter was written, it may be that this is even a second generation of Jesus followers, some kids that were born at the time of Christ and then raised in faith. We also know that these are highly educated and informed people. The letter to the Hebrews is complicated. Uh, The author quotes scripture all the time. The author references all sorts of Jewish, or, or sorry, Greek philosophical thought and even maybe alludes to some to then modern Greek authors. And you don't do that if you think your audience has no idea what you're talking about, you do that if you know that your audience has got some academic chops and is going to follow your argument. Plus, ancient letter writing often had no punctuation marks. If you quote scripture, there's no quotation marks. They just put it in there. Sometimes it didn't even have spaces between the words. 
It was just letter after letter after letter. So it takes a lot to be able to follow along. And the author believes this is an educated, faithful, committed group of Jesus' followers who have now in their life begun to experience suffering. And suffering of some pretty serious sorts that history tells us is actually only going to get more serious. The letter indicates that some people uh, have now been imprisoned for their faith. People have started to experience public ridicule. Being a Jesus follower is falling out of style, and it's becoming something that gets you scorn and shame. Some people have lost property that's been seized by the government as a form of punishment for your faith in Christ. And because of this difficulty, their faith, which was once sure and strong and full of energy, they're starting to lose their enthusiasm and their commitment to following Christ. And so this pastor, caring for this community, is using some harsh words to try and wake them up and give them courage on what has become a difficult journey for them. It's interesting, you know, I think to myself, I read some of these words and I go, would I, like in a, in a pastoral role, would I speak with that tone to a member of my church? You know, when you think about exhortation, exhortation can happen kind of on a spectrum. And I'd like to think of it as a spectrum from stick to carrot, right? You can exhort somebody and you can be like, man, you're doing so good and I believe in you and this, you're going you're gonna to nail it. You've got this. All you got to do is X, Y, and Z, right? That's like the carrot. Like you've got your arm around somebody and you're encouraging them. And then there's the other kind that it's like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? That was the most foolish thing I've ever seen. You've got to stop that and start doing this instead. And it's, it's risky business to do the stick version of exhortation. Maybe you've tried it on somebody in your own life and learned that it's risky business. Maybe somebody's tried it on you. And if it wasn't the right person at the right time, with the right words, you might respond, how dare you speak to me like that? You don't know me, right? But, <laughs> no, I won't. Oh, I can't, I gotta, okay. Oh. <laughs> Stop it. There we go, exhortation. Stop it. But if it's the right person, at the right time, who's got the right relational capital, you might hear the same words, harsh though they are, and you might go, oh, you're right. You're right. I think we can give the author the benefit of the doubt that they write these harsh words, not just because they're trying to be harsh, but because they have the relational capital to know that sometimes what people need is a little more of the stick to wake them up to the life of faith that God has called them to. And here's the, here's the heart of the content of what they say. They say, grow up. Put aside immaturity and move towards maturity. And they give two pairs to kind of explain what that means. What's maturity according to the author? Well, immaturity is being unacquainted with the teachings about righteousness. And maturity is being able to distinguish 
between good and evil. The word teachings here is actually the Greek word, you already know this word, um, it's the Greek word logos. It's a word that means word. And they translated it as teaching because some people think word can just mean like, like an idea, a piece of content. They're saying, well, immaturity means you don't even know what it means to live the righteous life God made you for. Logos can also mean critical thinking, the ability to reason and think and process. And so another version of this interpretation is you don't even know how to think critically about making righteous decisions in your life. Mature people, they know how to do the work of discernment so that we can identify good versus evil in our world. Because it turns out, as much as we would like it, if all of the decisions between right and wrong were simple, obvious decisions, as much as we would like that, we do in fact live in a complicated world. And we have multiple relationships giving conflicting points of view. And we often have to do hard work of discernment to say not just what's the simple, obvious, and black and white, but how do I critically, prayerfully in my community think about the good God is calling me to do and resist the evil God's calling me away from. The second thing that the author says is an evidence of maturity is moving away from the elementary teachings about Christ and moving forward to maturity. Well, they basically say, if you want to be mature, what you have to do is pursue maturity. Or, as one pastor I know said, grow up. So what is maturity? The author says it's learning to do the hard work of critically thinking, of prayerful discernment about right and wrong, good and evil in my life. But the second thing they do, which is kind of a launching point of this idea of leaving behind the elementary and moving forward, is really the whole letter to the Hebrews answers the question in another way. So the context of the letter answers what is maturity. And if you were to read just cover to cover, which you're welcome to do, just permission granted, try it out, cover to cover, takes you 45 minutes or so. Um, what you'll notice is that over and over and over and over again, the author talks about how Jesus is greater than all sorts of different aspects of Jewish religious life. We just mentioned he's talking about how Jesus is the greatest high priest, but he actually, the author talks about how Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the tabernacle, greater than the high priest, greater than all the sacrifices, greater than the Sabbath itself. Jesus is greater than everything. Here's what I think the author is trying to do. All of these ideas are important, valuable, good to understand. But I think what we can all observe in life is if we learn something critical and true and foundational and we don't continue to pursue a mature understanding of it, a simple foundational truth can easily get twisted into a misunderstanding of the truth. And whereas you and I probably don't spend a lot of time wondering about the meaning of the ancient tabernacle as it relates to my faith today, here's what I do know. As Jesus followers, the center for us is the good news of Christ, that God saw a world broken by sin and saw our lives broken by sin. And God did not stay far off and say, well, looks like you've got a problem to figure out. But rather, 
God came down and said, I'm going to make your problem my problem. And God took our sins upon his shoulders and saved us from the inevitable consequences of all the evil, dumb, hurtful things that we do in our lives. That's the gospel truth. That's the foundation we stand on. But if we don't pursue maturity, that foundational gospel truth can get twisted. When I think about what are some of the ways the truth of the gospel gets twisted, maybe especially in modern American Christianity, I know that I see things like vending machine Jesus. Oh, God wants to help me out? Great. I'm just going to go put a couple prayer quarters in and I get a sweet treat out of the bottom. That's what God is to me. He's just a vending machine in the sky. Maybe I'm a little more cynical than that. Now it's, it's slot machine Jesus. I just, I got to put my quarters in and I got to pull the lever all day long and maybe if I'm lucky, someday God's going to bless me with a jackpot, but I guess I just got to put my prayer quarters in all day anyway. We've got therapeutic Jesus. Oh, God wants to save me from my sins. Basically, God exists to help me feel better about myself. Okay, counselors in the room, I know counseling and therapy is way more than that, but it's for the sermon illustration. Right, okay. Um, we, we reduce God and we reduce the gospel to something basically there only to help me feel good. Or, of course, we've got buddy Jesus. We've got Jesus is just my pal and I love to hang out with him on the weekends and boy, he's a good time, right? Uh, or, one of what I think might be the most dangerous, good guy Jesus. Oh, man. Jesus was such a good guy. Wow, I wish I could be like that good guy. Because if I call Jesus a good guy, maybe I don't have to take seriously the demands he places on my life. But whatever it is, for the first audience, they had their list of ways that they were letting the basics get twisted into wrong understandings. We have that same danger as well. The gospel can get twisted to something other than what God truly means it to be, and we have to ask ourselves. We have to, I guess, recognize the the author is challenging us to say, maturity is learning that Jesus is so much more. There's always something more, greater, more beautiful, more transformational that we can gain an understanding about who God is, about what he's doing in this world and what he's doing in my life. And when that becomes the journey I'm walking on, of understanding that God, Jesus, is so much more, I start to live as though that is true. Maturity means asking yourself regularly, am I living like that is true? Like God really is so much more. In a sense, um, this sermon series, the exhortations throughout Hebrews, is really another version. It sits in parallel to what we talked about all summer. Maturity, the exhortations to pursue God in faith, really sits parallel with, in some ways it's synonymous to, what the Old Testament called wisdom. Am I living my life just based on whatever understanding drifts my way from the world around me? Or am I pursuing some wisdom that has been proven true for generations. That is the very word of God. Which means, like always, we have to ask ourselves, what's your move? 
What's my move? Gonna be what what am I gonna do about it? I was uh, talking to my counselor just a couple weeks ago in my own journey of transformation, pursuing maturity. I realized that's a good, healthy practice for me. Turns out, like we've just said, life's complicated. It's good to get help to untangle the challenges of life. And I'm chatting with them, and and they said something that just grabbed me so much that I thought, I'm going to put that on a sermon slide. They said, a 16-year-old is not just a bigger version of a six-year-old. They are a completely different kind of person. The growth and maturity that God wants to do is not just well, I'm getting older, so I guess I'm getting wiser. No, it's I need to grow into a completely new kind of person. Less and less of the person that the sin of this world wants me to be, and more and more of the person that the good God and creator of the universe designed me to be. And if that's true, then as faithful Jesus followers, we have to pretty regularly be asking myself, where? Where is it? I got to get specific. I got to get into the details. I got I to make plans. I got to make actions. I got to choose some actual things to do. Where in my life and faith do I need to grow up? You know, you could, you could consider, am I, am, I just getting, uh, am I just getting bigger? Or am I actually maturing? Am I merely growing older? Or am I pursuing the growth that Christ has for me? Am I simply being given and, and, and carrying more responsibility? Or am I actually moving away from infancy? Am I just earning more money, making more consequential decisions, and doing it with all the immaturity I had when I was a teenager? Or am I actually coming to more, becoming more mature so that I can handle the bigger challenges, the greater complexity, the harder struggles that we know will come our way in life. Think about it this way. It's breakfast time, okay? It's breakfast time, and and you know that a good breakfast, some good nutrition is critical to getting you throughout the day. So you've got some options. Option number one, you can take out of the oven your fresh loaf of sourdough bread that you let rise the night before and has now baked in the morning and its aroma is filling the house. I actually did bake some sourdough to use as this illustration, and then I burnt it. So I just bought this one from Safeway. But imagine that I had made it, and it'll make the illustration even better, right? So you can wake up, and, and kids don't like sourdough. It tastes sour, right? It's gross, but adults, well, oh, and if you toast it, and then it's not just toasted, but you get a stick of the premium Irish butter, and you just lather it on there, because you want, you know, the calories, and then, and then you get some of the jam that your neighbor just made from their raspberry bushes. This is just Safeway jam, but let's imagine your neighbor made it from their raspberry bushes, and Oh, you can have for breakfast, you could eat, you could nourish yourself with a slice of sourdough bread, the food that adults eat. And you, oh, mmm, oh. 
It's really good. Just trust, oh, it's really good. It's like I'm on the Food Network. Mmm. Oh. If you're adults, if we're mature, we wake up in the morning and we eat food that will nourish us, strengthen us, grow us up. Or, I had four kids, and all of them loved to wake up in the morning. And you know what they love to eat in the morning? Safeway Organics apple and strawberry puffs. Oh, man. Kids love these things. These little flavorless styrofoam-like. It sort of dissolves in a very unpleasant way in my mouth. It's like it's got it crunches and then it just disappears. And there's got to be at least a couple calories in here because it, it says there's flour. But there's just no way this is going to sustain me throughout my day. And so we got to ask ourselves, when we wake up every morning, and we need to nourish ourselves not just for the physical day ahead of us, but for the spiritual, relational, emotional, mental, challenges and workouts and trials and excitements that we have to live through, what are we going to put into our bodies? Are we going to be people who pursue the solid food that really gives us health? Or the food that infants like, that might taste good to the young, but we just know is not going to get us where we need to go? Would you pray with me? God, as we always acknowledge, we're, we're a group of people in, in different places in life, on different stages of the journey. We're thinking about our lives, you know, some of us here in the room right now, some of us online at home. People are going to listen to this maybe a couple days, a couple weeks later. But we know that every one of us has to choose almost daily about whether or not we're going to stay comfortable where we're at, even if we know it's, it's a place of immaturity, or if we're going to hear your call to grow up, to pursue greater maturity, becoming more and more the person you have called us to be. During the next song, we're going to pause and look at another author's idea of what maturity means. But whether it's this modern author or the pastor who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, or ultimately, we hope, God, your words speaking to our hearts. As we continue to sing and pray and reflect, God, would you show us where it is that we need to take our next step towards maturity on this shared journey that we're walking. Amen.